Welcome, welcome to Not a Hoax, Not a Dream, the podcast about comic book characters who just don't quit. You can try to write them off, but they'll just get written back in. You can try to kill them, but they'll just get better. I'm your host, Ben, and I'm recording from Lab World, home of The Stranger. No, not the absurdist novel by Albert Camus, or the Orson Welles movie about tracking down a Nazi war criminal hiding out in Connecticut. No, this stranger is the obscure Marvel Comics villain, and I gotta say, the worst stranger out of the trifecta. But we'll get more into him later. Before all that, let me say that I realize it's been a while since the last episode, and there's a reason for that. Lab World, as we'll discover, is pretty hard to escape from. But while I was there, I started a master's program in information science and managed to graduate, so now that that's all over with, I'll hopefully have more time on my hands. Still... Summer is upon us, and I have a vacation coming up, so this may well be the last episode of the season. Season 3 will start in the fall, and now that school's over, I should be able to record more regularly at that point. I may have trouble finding time to record my podcasts, but I did somehow find time to record someone else's podcast. Y'all should remember the SJW Comic Book Club from episode 19 on The Phoenix. They're a great comic book podcast themselves, and every season they pick two themes to decide which comics they'll read. This season, one of the themes is best-selling comics, and one of the comics is 2014's Amazing Spider-Man number 1 through 6, which takes place right after the Superior Spider-Man storyline I covered in episode 4 of my podcast. So, listen to season 12, episode 2 of SJW Comic Book Club if you want to hear the one I'm on, And while you're there, just browse around and see what other episodes you want to listen to. They're all good. Okay, with that business out of the way, let's get into today's character, Al B. Harper. He's not as well known as many of the other characters I've covered, but his story is a banger, I promise. So without further ado, let's turn the clock back to the late 60s during the Silver Surfer's first solo series at Marvel Comics. Once on a planet of wisdom known as Zenra, There lived a man of nobility and courage. Now, a new being lives in his stead. Behold, the Silver Surfer. It's 1968, approaching a year after the Summer of Love, and the counterculture movement continues to build in America's younger generation. In February, Walter Cronkite returns from Vietnam, claiming it's more certain than ever that the bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. In March, the U.S. military fails to cover up a massacre where a company killed 500 unarmed villagers. In the first six months of 1968, more than 200 major demonstrations take place at 100 college campuses across the country, with over 40,000 students in attendance. In April, students commandeer several buildings on Columbia University's campus in response to the university's plans to displace black housing to build a new gym. Police arrested 700 of them to clear out the occupied buildings, but the resulting news coverage caused Columbia's president to resign, and the university ultimately doesn't move forward with any demolition. Least consequentially, Silver Surfer No. 1 comes out in May. Writer and editor Stan Lee is middle-aged by the late 60s, but no stranger to college campuses, having become a popular in-demand speaker at institutes of higher learning across the country. It's very possible he hopes to tap into the prevalent mindsets of these students by writing a character who waxes philosophical about the beauty of Earth and the illogical violence of mankind that constantly gets in the way of us enjoying it. The Silver Surfer first appeared in Fantastic Four number 48 to number 50 as the Herald of Galactus come to make way for the Devourer of Planets. Originally created as one of many of Jack Kirby's throwaway genius character designs, Stan took a special liking to the character, seeing something noble in the Surfer's appearance. 
In the story, the alien turns on his master to help the Fantastic Four defeat him, and is as a result trapped on Earth, blocked from entering the stars by a powerful force field created by Galactus. Stan Lee learns that the Galactus trilogy, with its world-shaking gravity and quasi-religious connotations, has become a favorite among college students. The Silver Surfer Lee writes is a different kind of Marvel superhero. He's an outsider through and through, and struggles to find something redeemable about the citizens of the planet he's trapped on. In every issue, you can expect the surfer to launch into a soliloquy about the idiocy of mankind at any moment. You could create a drinking game out of it for every panel where this happens, and come out of it pretty damn drunk. If you're like me, you've probably seen these panels while scrolling through Tumblr in the 2010s, or even posted and reblogged a lot of them yourself. Here's part of a multi-panel speech from the first issue. And yet, in their uncontrollable insanity, in their unforgivable blindness, they seek to destroy this shining jewel, this softly spitting gem, this tiny blessed sphere, which men call Earth. While trapped upon this world of madness, stand I. How much longer am I destined to endure a fate I cannot even comprehend? The surfer waves his hands to and fro dramatically as he utters his words, and John Buscema's art manages to present someone both completely alien in appearance and completely human in emotion. Through Buscema's pencils and Lee's words, the Silver Surfer becomes a Shakespearean tragic hero with the power of a Greek god. Surfer's frustration with humanity really only increases as the series goes on, as he's often greeted with fear, hostility, and violence wherever he goes. He often tries to escape the planet's atmosphere in frustration, only to again and again be repelled by Galactus's barrier and sent hurtling back to the ground. It's more than just us that motivates him. Surfer seeks to return to his home planet, where he was known as Norin Rad, so he can be reunited with his love, Shalabal. Norin sees her again as the result of the demon Mephisto's machinations, but the reunion is short-lived. At one point, after a confrontation with police where they mistakenly believed him to be trying to harm a woman, Surfer becomes so angry that he shuts off all electricity on the planet, though he quickly reverses the measure. After four issues of angst-ridden monologues, we begin to wonder if anything will ever go this dude's way. Maybe he just needs someone to talk to. But is there any such person on Earth who the Silver Surfer could ever consider a friend? We find out in... The Silver Surfer, number five. And who shall mourn for him? Produced and presented by Stan Lee and John Buscema, with embellishments by Sal Buscema and letters by Sam Rosen. The opening page presents to us a hectic morning at the Baxter Building. You'd think the Fantastic Four, with all of their advanced magic-like technology, would be able to give themselves a spare full bath. Half bath, or two. But instead, Reed Richards and Ben Grimm are both occupying the same bathroom, the thing scrubbing down with soap in the shower while Reed shaves at the sink. Maybe Sue is another one, or maybe the two guys' relationship is just that intimate. Either way, their morning routines are cut short as an alarm rings throughout the headquarters. An intruder is headed for the lab. This mysterious entity is able to come and go without anyone seeing them, but Johnny Storm flames on and flies after. The Human Torch only sees a blur headed for space, but intrepidly follows, up to the point when lack of oxygen forces him to turn back empty-handed, none the wiser as to who it was that broke in. We find out soon that the perpetrator is Silver Surfer, who stole a device Richards built that can penetrate into other dimensions. As soon as the Surfer heard of it, he knew that it must be his. This is a way for him to finally break the barrier keeping him locked on Earth, a way for him to finally return to Zen La in Shalabal. But I know, I know, I asked the same thing you're asking now. Why didn't he just ask Richards to use the machine? After all, as far as I know, he left off on pretty good terms with the Fantastic Four. 
he's built good will with them with the whole turning on his master in order to save the planet thing. Nonetheless, the surfer feared refusal and felt he couldn't risk it. I mean, I guess I get it. Rejection sensitivity sucks, for sure. Norin Rad activates the device in Earth's orbit, hoping to tear a hole through to the greater infinity of outer space. But something goes wrong. Instead of the desired outcome, the machine explodes in a wild eruption of energy, sending the surfer hurtling back to Earth. Norin Rad loses consciousness, and the next thing he experiences is a vision of his beloved Shalabal walking towards him in the mist. But it's all a dream, and the surfer awakes in an unfamiliar bed, the smell of bacon in the air. Norin wanders to the kitchen to find the cook. He sees a black man, middle-aged, smoking pipe in mouth, who's dressed in a nice vest, shirt, and slacks. He introduces himself as Harper, Al B. Harper. Harper tells his guest to sit down and have some coffee and something to eat, but Surfer protests, saying he has no need for physical nourishment. Al doesn't accept that. You don't need it, friend. It just warms the inner man. The two get to talking. Harper is a physicist by occupation, but a hobbyist geologist. He came across the Surfer's knocked-out body while on a rock collecting foray, and recognized him immediately as the Silver Surfer. He also knew that he needed help and maybe even a friend. He brought him back to his car to take back home. The Silver Surfer is astonished by this turn of events, reeled by the fact that a human would choose to befriend him. Why? he asks. Albie Harper relights his pipe and answers. Maybe it's because I know how it feels to be pushed around. Now suppose you tell me. What's going on? The Surfer isn't shy. He tells him of the barrier in space that has him imprisoned, of how this was only his most recent failed attempt to escape. Harper is intrigued. Luckily for the surfer, this problem is exactly the kind of theoretical research he specializes in. He thinks he might just be able to create a way to break through the barrier once and for all. But there's a catch. This project will require new equipment. Expensive equipment. He'd need large amounts of money that he just doesn't have. At the mention of money, Silver Surfer tells his newfound friend to say no more. He shall retrieve the money in return. But before he can leave, Harper stops him, saying he's not going to get far fundraising with his current look. He gives the surfer some clothes, a hat, sunglasses, and a trench coat, to better blend into society. The silver surfer goes out and tries to get a job, but disguise or no disguise, all of his potential employers notice something off about him. More than that, he has no references, no home address, no social security card, no background to check at all. So despite saying he's willing to do any kind of work, Norin Rad is unable to land a job anywhere. Desperate, he decides to skip employment and get money directly from the source, where it is kept and stored. Surfer breaks into the First National Bank, where he finds piles of the stuff just sitting there. Money! Most truly worthless of all Earth's bounty, and yet, what incalculable suffering, what immeasurable anguish have been endured for the lack of it. But what has come over me? Am I so driven by despair that I would steal what is not mine? To escape the mad, unthinking humans, must I descend to their own lawless evil? The Silver Surfer leaves the money where it is, and erases a cop's memory who tries to stop him as he leaves. Now outside, he hears the sound of moaning from a nearby alley, and discovers a broken-down man laying amidst trash. The man has lost everything, and fears that men are on their way to take his life. Norin Rad hears the man's tale. His wife was sick, and the medical bills were too great to manage. In desperation, he took to the one avenue he'd yet to explore. Gambling. He frequented a shady local gambling joint, trying to score big, and then trying to break even, and then found himself hopelessly in the hole. But when he discovered the dice were weighted, things turned violent. The joint's hired muscle worked him over and threw him out before he could let anyone else know. 
The Silver Surfer takes the man's story in, and ponders. After a moment, he asks the man to show him how to play the game. When the surfer tries his hand at dice, he does so with much more success. After all, it's a simple matter to use the power cosmic to telekinetically control some dice, or even alter localized probability. The surfer works the house over game after game and leaves the joint with a trench coat stuffed with stacks of cash. On his way out, the joint's muscle is close on his tail, not about to let someone leave that big a winner. They have no idea what they're up against, and the surfer dispatches with them quick and brutal, only leaving them alive after a last-second consideration. He returns to the man on the street, and gives him a portion of his winnings as thanks, before summoning his board. The man watches him leave, dumbfounded, in awe, and grateful. Harper is suspicious at just how much money the surfer has acquired so quickly, but after a brief chat he sets to work, designing the machine that will allow the Silver Surfer to return to the stars. During the long hours and days he works on the project, Harper ruminates on just what he's gotten himself into, but he knows he can't let his newfound friend down. The Silver Surfer has been treated like an outcast wherever he goes, just because of the way he looks, just because he's different. Maybe it takes a guy like him to really understand. Eventually, it's done, and Harper has finished engineering his device. It won't be able to shatter Galactus's barrier, but instead will scramble the field and disguise Surfer's molecular structure long enough for him to escape. The Surfer straps on the device and heads to the barrier to try it, blasting the Force Shield repeatedly in order to confuse the automatic field. But somewhere in space, approaching Earth, someone takes notice of the Silver Surfer's attempt at escape. It is the Stranger, an alien with almost limitless power, who has traveled to Earth in the past. The first time he was here, he fought with the X-Men in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and that visit left a sour taste in his mouth. Much like the Silver Surfer, he finds humankind to be lacking, but is much less generous than the other guy, while the Surfer at least finds it tragic that humans fight each other when Earth and mankind have so much potential, the Stranger could do without the place whole cloth. Like, he just finds all of Earth to be a shit show, or as he says in the comic, a festering sore in the body of the universe, like a malignant infection that must be destroyed before it can spread throughout the cosmos. So yeah, he's headed back to destroy the whole planet and be done with it. But as he approaches, he senses the beams fired out from Harper's machine and goes to investigate. He sees the Silver Surfer and calls out to him, warning the fellow alien to leave the planet while he has a chance, as it and all its citizens are about to be destroyed. It would be an easy thing to accept, but once again the surfer comes to the defense of planet Earth and its inhabitants. Though men seem mad, they are not without hope. With the passing of years, they will gain maturity. But the stranger refuses to listen, and prepares to activate the no-life bomb. The surfer attempts to stop him, but not even the power cosmic is enough to prevent the stranger from teleporting away to plant the bomb. Surfer flies back down to Al B. Harper to warn him, and the two set out to find the no-life bomb before it can detonate. Harper brings a portable gyroscope he designed to search for meteorites, which he adapts to detect the bomb, and combined with the surfer's ability to traverse miles and seconds, the two are able to find the general area where it's planted. Harper continues to hone in on its specific location while the surfer goes to head off the stranger before he could interfere. As Silver Surfer flies towards the Earth's adversary, the stranger once again entreats for the surfer to leave while he can. Are they not both beings from the remotest reaches of space? Why should he defend these bestial humans that are beyond saving? But even if he's spent every waking second imagining escape from this chaotic world, Norrin Rad will not turn his back on its denizens. The two cosmic beings do battle, using powers beyond the imaginings of mortals. 
blows that would destroy buildings, blasts that would disintegrate even the strongest of alloys. During the fight, the stranger reveals that even were the surfer to find the bomb, it contains a defense mechanism that brings death to any that tampers with it. Hearing this, the surfer tries to leave to warn his friend, but the stranger doesn't let up, and Norrin Rad is unable to escape. Meanwhile, Al Harper is getting closer to the bomb with every step, but finds interference when a group of men assault him, assuming him to be some kind of radical causing trouble with his device. Harper fights them off and borrows one of their cars, driving out to where the signal is at peak intensity. At last, he's found it. At first it appears as a normal rock, but Harper breaks it on the ground to reveal the explosive device within. Even though this wasn't made on Earth, Harper knows he can deactivate it. He simply has no choice, the entire world depends on it. As he begins to tamper with the bomb's mechanisms, however, he triggers the stranger's built-in defenses, and a noxious green vapor pours outward. It chokes the air around him, burns his clothes and his flesh, and sets his lungs on fire. But he can't stop. He keeps going, working on the alien device with all his strength, all his mental acumen. And at last, it is done. The moment the bomb is diffused, the stranger senses it, and suddenly knows the sacrifice required to stop it. Somewhere on this planet, one man was willing to lay his life down, to give up everything to save others. And that means... something. It means he misjudged them, these creatures, who can be so savage, but also so selfless. The stranger calls their battle to an end and leaves the surfer, returning to his endless wandering of endless space. Norrin Rad seeks out his friend, and finds what he has feared to be true. Not even the power cosmic can restore life once it's lost. But he does prepare Albie Harper a grave, and a tribute. Holding at his hand, the Silver Surfer ignites a flame which will burn so long as Earth itself endures. His respects paid, the Silver Surfer leaves, but bids his friend one last goodbye. May you sleep in peace, Al Harper, for you have been a hero. Man, that is a classic comic book story. A classic sci-fi story, really. Two all-powerful beings fight over the fate of Earth while a human being proves what it means to be selfless. And like with a lot of classics, it's often best to leave them be and don't think about them too much. Like, there's holes. The, the fact that Silver Surfer doesn't go back to the Fantastic Four when he finds out about the Stranger's no-life bomb. Like, bro, are you still afraid of rejection here? What's going on? There's even a scene I left out of the synopsis where Al Harper tells Surfer to stay put, and he tries to warn a bunch of people himself. The police, the FBI, the military, but no one believes him. It's an interesting scene for a lot of reasons, but it just doesn't make sense from a plot perspective. It can definitely be fun to revisit classic stories, and it can be worthwhile to give them a healthy bit of criticism when you do, while still acknowledging what makes them classic. That's what we'll see more than 50 years later, when John Jennings decides to return to this comic and bring Albie Harper back to life. You are familiar with the thought experiment, the ship of Theseus in the field of identity metaphysics. Naturally. The ship of Theseus is an artifact in a museum. Over time, its planks of wood rot and are replaced with new planks. When no original plank remains, is it still the ship of Theseus? Secondly, if those removed planks are restored and reassembled free of the rot, is that the ship of Theseus? Neither is the true ship. Both are the true ship. Well, then we are agreed. Volume 1 of Silver Surfer ends up lasting 18 issues, the last of which is drawn by Jack Kirby. 
it infamously ends on a pessimistic cliffhanger. Finally fed up with humanity's violence for good, the last page zooms in on the surfer's face contorted in anger, as he declares that he's ready to battle mankind on their own savage terms. From now on, the Silver Surfer will be the deadliest one of all. But then the series is cancelled, and we never see what the Surfer did, if anything. For years, it seems like the Surfer was just having a bad day, as this isn't tied up or even mentioned again until an obscure Spider-Man series in 1999. As the story goes, Jack Kirby would like to have worked on the solo series of the character he created from the beginning, but him and Stan didn't see eye to eye on the Surfer's origin story. This is speculated to be one of many reasons Kirby ultimately leaves Marvel and moves to DC. Despite the series being unsuccessful commercially, the Silver Surfer becomes a cult favorite character, especially among college students. As Stanley continues with the college campus talk circuit well into the 70s, students often ask about the symbolism and meaning underlying the character's stories, and Lee eats this up. It's obvious the Surfer holds a soft place in his heart. He returns to the Surfer when he can, most notably in 1978 with Jack Kirby, the last comic the two of them would ever create together, and in 1988 with the French comic book maestro Mobius. The next time the Surfer gets an ongoing series, Stan is notably disappointed no one asks him to write it. Many speculate that Silver Surfer served as a mouthpiece for Stan Lee's own thoughts about life in the world, and Lee never exactly denied it. So what is Stan saying in Silver Surfer number 5, and who shall mourn for him? Media and Cultural Studies professor John Jennings has this to say. It's like Stan Lee has created a character that is kind of like a Black Death Matters story. He seemed to want to have a conversation about race and about civil rights. He creates this wonderful character that he then kills on purpose. He then asks us, This black man who has saved your lives and saved the entire Marvel Universe, do you care about him? Jennings comes across this story in 2020 during the George Floyd protests while researching for a comic book related project. He recounts the full story to KCRW. I had recently lost my own sister to a heart attack super early. This was right before Chadwick Boseman passed away. I lost a close friend of mine to COVID, and it just seemed like there were a lot of people of color who were being affected by COVID, and disproportionately so. It just seemed like a lot of black death around me, and I was looking at this character, and I was like, well, why couldn't he be resurrected? Jennings, a graphic novel writer himself, wrote an essay for Marvel on the X-Men graphic novel God Loves, Man Kills. So he pitches his idea to them to bring Albie Harper back to life as the superhero Ghost Light, named after the theatrical practice of leaving one light on at the end of the night to drive away ghosts and ensure the show opens again the next day. Marvel says yes. In the Marvel 616 universe, Norrin Rad never forgets about his friend Al Harper. He makes it a practice to visit Al's grave once a year. Even long after Galactus's barrier no longer denies him travel to the stars, he makes the trip, no matter where in the galaxy he might be. Nevertheless, there is a lot the Silver Surfer doesn't know about Harper. He doesn't know why the man lived a solitary life, surrounded by only his experiments and advanced technology. It turns out that Al had a family, a wife and two kids, a living mother, and a sister. Harper graduated with a PhD from MIT, and was on track for tenure as a professor before his trusted mentors stole and published Al's theoretical work. Harper confronted the man, punching him out, which cost him his job and any chance he had at tenured professorship. Struggling to find work in his field, Harper ended up working with AIM, Advanced Ideas Mechanics, a dangerous group of amoral scientists who often brush up against the superheroes of the Marvel Universe. The money was good, but the ethics of it less so, and Harper feared for his family. So he moved away to Sweetwater, New York by himself and sent his wife and children money from afar. Eventually, they stopped taking it. That's where Silver Surfer found him, 
or rather, he found Surfer, unconscious in the forest near his home. The other thing the Silver Surfer doesn't know is that Albie Harper didn't actually die on that fateful day when he saved the planet Earth. The green mist that emanated from the bomb was a cloud of advanced nanites, which removed Harper's life force from his body on Earth, and gave it a new form in a different place called Lab World. Lab World is a realm the Stranger uses to experiment on the thousands of beings he's collected from across the universe. Through his time surviving on Lab World, Harper learns the Stranger's true nature. Some days the Stranger would be kind. Usually he would be cruel, but he is always unpredictable. The Stranger is in fact not one person at all, but an entire population of a planet given singular form. The technology that enables this used to be stable, but over millennia has broken down, and the Stranger as a result has become more and more capricious and volatile. Al Harper bands together with a group of rebels, and they fight back against the Stranger's forces. Back on Earth, over a decade goes by, and Harper's house in Sweetwater remains empty. He's willed it to his wife and kids, but it's his sister Glenda who eventually moves into the property, along with her husband, Donnie Brooks, her daughter, Tony and son Josh, and her mother, Hattie Mae Harper. Hattie Mae has just had a pacemaker surgery, and the family sought out Al's old place so that she could move in with them with plenty of space. Not everyone is thrilled with the decision, namely the teenage Tony, who's been pulled away from her friends in life in Bedstoy, New York City. Plus, there's something weird about Sweetwater. A little over ten years ago, a mysterious occurrence caused everyone in the town to forget an entire day. Whatever happened, no one can remember it, but the town holds a festival every year to celebrate this unique historical oddity. More than that, Tony has been having dreams since they moved in two months ago, dreams of a glowing green man who beckons for her to follow him. One day, while their parents are out and their grandma is asleep, Tony and Josh decide to dig around the grounds of the place and explore. Their mother had told them to stay away from the shed on the property, but curiosity wins out. They don't know much about their deceased uncle, only that he mysteriously sequestered himself from the family years ago. Maybe this shed holds the clues to who he was that they couldn't find in the house itself. They break in by deciphering the locks combination, and at first see nothing but assembled junk, the kind of stuff you'd skip over in a garage sale. But when they activate a secret door, they find the engineering lab underneath, filled with bulky computers and expensive tech. One of the devices they find is a high-tech suit and cannon that readers of Silver Surfer No. 5 would recognize as the machine Harper built for the surfer. Josh accidentally sets it off, and blasts Ricochet outward, bursting out from the ground and spreading out into the sky above. Somewhere in space, a solitary figure on a cosmic surfboard takes notice. The two kids run outside to assess the damage and follow the beam of energy they see to its destination, a solitary grave in a lonely clearing nearby. Even before the blast arrived there, an ominous fire burned, but now the device's energy and the fire combined, and out of the resulting explosion, a glowing figure wreathed in green fire emerges. The ghostly silhouette of a man starts to babble what sounds like incoherent nonsense, and the kids are baffled and afraid. Then another booming voice enters the chaos. Who dares? Who dares disturb the final resting place of Al Harper? Hero, entrusted friend of the Silver Surfer. The Silver Surfer, Ghost Light, number two. Written by John Jennings, art by Valentin Delandro, colored by Matt Mila, and lettered by Joe Sabino, with recap art by John and Sal Busema, edited by Kat Gregorowitz and Darren Sean. This issue opens in pure Marvel Comics tradition as a misunderstanding prompts both our heroes into a fight. Al Harper is confused and bewildered, speaking of Lab World and of fighting the Stranger's alien warriors. 
Silver Surfer defends himself as he tries to reason with the friend he thought deceased. Tony and Josh cower nearby, terrified, suddenly wishing they chose not to check out the Forbidden Shack after all. The Surfer's words finally sink in, and Harper stops for a moment. He takes in his surroundings. The green fire erupting around him vanishes, and Al is once again only a man. N-Norin? I don't... How did I get back here? How... I... This isn't Lab World? Norin Rad tells Harper that he's back on Earth, and that he's been away for a long time. It's a lot for Al to take in. He mumbles apologies, suddenly feeling weak, his head pounding in pain. His body begins to give out from exhaustion, and the Silver Surfer lays him down on his board. Tony and Josh come out from hiding. They realize that the formerly glowing man is their Uncle Al, and ask the server how he knows him. Norrin Rad explains everything, ending with the eternal flame he lit in front of Al Harper's grave, and has promised to visit once a year. The kids are awed by this story, but Tony has questions. So, our uncle has been in the ground for over a decade, only a few hundred yards from his home? And you never thought someone else was missing him? Like he was just yours to mourn? The solitary surfer is taken aback. He starts to explain, but in the end just says, No. They all head back to Al's house. Glenda and Donnie have arrived back home and wonder where their kids are. Instead of finding just them, they're reunited with Glenda's presumed deceased brother and introduced to a silver-plated alien. Al Harper awakes, and tearful reunions commence, including with Hattie Mae, who faints to the ground upon seeing her son. Al runs over to help, and immediately deduces a problem. Al Harper's body is now filled with alien nanobots which can speak with other technological systems and which can manipulate matter at a molecular level. So Al realizes that his mother's pacemaker is defective, and he simply fixes it with a thought. Awake again, Hattie Mae is overjoyed to see her boy alive again in front of her, and the two hug. Al Harper then uses his nanotech to arrange for him a fresher set of clothes than the all-black alien jumpsuit he'd previously had donned. They're all wondering how he's alive once again, and so Harper tells them of Lab World, and explains that some force pulled him back to his earthly body, a force somehow related to dreamlike visions he saw of Tony, but he can't remember all the details. Before anyone can celebrate, there's something Al needs to do. There's a fluctuation in the nanites coursing through him, and he needs to return to his old lab to figure out what's going on. Once there, he fuses with the device he'd built for Surfer, as the nanobots reconfigure it into a sleek, glowing green, yellow, and black suit, the first costume of Ghost Light. Meanwhile, a few miles away at a summer camp, something is amiss. Grotesque, dark slime creatures have crawled out from the shadows, attacking children with their insidious tentacles. The monsters start to fuse with the kids, taking over their nervous systems, walking and speaking through their bodies. The children remaining have run far away, and found potential refuge in the Harper house. The Silver Surfer and Owl see the creatures come out from the tree line, heading towards the house, and leap into action. Harper keeps the monsters at bay with blasts of energy, while the Surfer uses his board to ferry the escaping children to safety in the house. Harper recognizes these creatures. They're called id leeches, and they originate directly from the subconscious psyche of the stranger. Somehow, the being has tracked Al here. Now that the fleeing, uninfected camp children are safe, the next step is to save the ones possessed by the id leeches. The process won't be permanent yet for another few hours. Al Harper and Silver Surfer begin to use their formidable powers to separate human from leech. Inside the house, the camp kids are settling in, still shaken up by this terrifying series of events. When Tony and Josh go to introduce themselves, the camp kids reel back in surprise. The brother and sister don't understand why. 
What they don't realize is that at some point during all of the commotion, both of their eyes have begun to glow. To be continued. I found out about Silver Surfer Ghostlight, and one of them shared that this comic is about a resurrected character who originally died in a Silver Surfer comic from the 60s. So, basically the perfect subject matter for this podcast. It's a good comic, too. Like I alluded to before, it's a respectful but fresh take on the source material that inspired it. As a recording, I've read the first three issues and excited to see where it goes from here. Check it out if you get the chance. And that's going to be a wrap for Season 2 of Not a Hoax, Not a Dream. It was honestly pretty hectic even getting this one out, but I knew I had to, because otherwise I'd be ending the season on episode 21, which is an odd number, instead of the nice even 22. 24 would have been perfect, or 25, numbers divisible by 5 are good too, but I'll accept 22. Thank you, and I mean thank you, for listening. You have options, there's tons of podcasts and music and YouTube videos and all kinds of things to occupy yourself with, so thanks for spending time with this show. I do it for one main reason. I really like comics, and my ADHD brain just naturally hyper-focuses on them since I guess the time I first opened one, at the age of five, I'm guessing. But if I saw no one was listening to the show, I would put these thoughts somewhere else, like a blog no one read instead. No recording or editing necessary. So if you enjoy the show, there are plenty of ways to show support. Tell a friend, give it a good rating and review on the app you're listening to, And you can always subscribe on the Patreon, where you could give me a dollar a month to fund Silver Surfer's acting school tuition. The guy could probably play a mean Hamlet. Find the Patreon link and other cool links in the show notes. Not a hoax, not a dream will return in the fall. Until then, always remember, we are all trapped upon this world of madness, destined to endure a fate we cannot even comprehend. So be kind to each other. See ya.